When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is explosive. It's ready to shatter. When it goes, it will send bits of itself out through the centuries. Don't you see this? We've dealt with podcasts before. If this is new... It is not just a podcast. Dune podcasts are something else. Hosts learn how to gain and hold personal power. Hosts are jealous. When they're divided, we'll absorb them one by one. Cut off their audio and the conversation will fall to... The conversation has two audio inputs. The producer, who may quit. Who will certainly quit. I don't like your tone, Leo. And I don't like your ignorance. What if the producer does quit? Will that shake our plans? It will shake the universe! (laughs) 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 Bum, bum, bum! (laughs) Leo, do you think we're getting big heads about this podcast? <laughs> yeah. Are we a little full of ourselves? I mean, not if we quit. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name is Abu. Ooh, and today we're back with Dune Messiah. Another episode, another book club installment for you from us. That's right. Nearly at the halfway mark, Leo. Yeah. Oh, my God. This book is going so quickly. Book Club 4. Book Club 4. If things go to plan like they almost never do, we're (laughs) aiming for eight episodes for Dune Messiah. So today is supposedly the halfway point. How exciting. But don't worry. If this trend is anything to take note of, the last three episodes are going to be like five hours each. So (laughs) eventually it'll just be us reading the book to you. It's great. Right. The true end goal of the Gamjabar podcast is to just become audiobook versions of <laughs> the books. <laughs> right. It's going to be great. Before we talk about today's reading, let's get our housekeeping out of the way. And of course, as always, first up, to our patrons, thank you so, so much. Seriously, your support means everything and makes Gamjabar a possibility. And if you're hearing this and you haven't joined the Patreon, Consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash gum jabbar. That's right. And as always, a special shout out to our Quizats Haderach level members, right. Case Aiken and Nate Hyde. We are afraid of what powers those two have. <laughs> and we're also thankful that they are so generous. Alongside, of course, all of our listeners, everyone who listens and shares this podcast week after week, and all of our patrons who support us and help us make this show. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Indeed. 
We have some sweet Dune merchandise available at gomjabarshop.com, including an enamel pen that I actually got in the mail uh, a couple days ago. Ooh. Got mine. And got to say, it's so nice. It's great. It looks so good on your jacket. Oh, it's so good. It's a good picture, too. My friend did a great job. Check out the website, gomjabarshop.com, to uh, flex some merchandise that people aren't going to recognize. <laughs> <laughs> It's just for us. It's for you. It's for me. It's just for us. You'll see it in the mirror and you'll go, hey, another Dune fan. Oh, it's just me again. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, this is a book club series, folks. So reach out to us, gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We hope that you are reading Dune Messiah along with us, whether it's your first time or your 10th time revisiting this book. Share your thoughts with us. Gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, our patrons are invited to an exclusive Discord server where they can chat with us more directly and geek out with other Dune fans about Dune and other geeky shit. <laughs> Indeed. It's been fun. It's been fun recently. We also, finally, for a spoiler warning, of course, you've heard this before, hopefully. It'd be weird if this was your first book club episode. <laughs> we keep our book club episodes 100% spoiler-free, covering only the events leading up to the page assigned to today's reading so we encourage first-time readers to listen because again our hope is to make your first journey through the sands of arrakis as good a journey as possible that's right okay that's housekeeping out of the way right let's jump into our mailbag section for today because we like to incorporate your emails and your questions and your discord messages in these episodes and we have two great questions for today. Yeah. To start off, we get an email from Sean Gimple. Sean says, What is the goal of the Bene Gesserit? And why do they need the Kwisat Tatarak? I understand the male can access the male genes, but what is the point? My basic understanding is that they want a powerful leader ruling the universe and that it would let them have power, but I'm not sure how it all fits together. That is a very big question, Sean, and a great one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Really, really probing the mysteries of this universe. <laughs> totally, yeah. I'm going to cop out here, Leo, because you actually responded to Sean's email with an answer, and all I did for our script was copy-paste it. A little peek behind the curtains <laughs> sure. for how this podcast is put together. So I'm going to cop out and take a back seat. Leo, why don't you take this one? Sure. And for anybody who hasn't yet written to us, this is the sort of response I send. <laughs> so just <laughs> pages and pages. It's a problem. I don't get anything else done when I'm responding to emails. It's fun, though. I enjoy it. So what I wrote to Sean, uh, basically, the Bene Gesserit want to guide humanity in the way that they think is best. On paper, it's kind of a noble cause, right? They recognize the power of multi-generational, you know, 50, 100 generations of planning. What is possible? Okay, well, what is possible is guiding humanity to a brighter tomorrow. They're doing a pretty good job of it, but they have this crazy blind spot. And that thing, as Annie tells us, is tomorrow. <laughs> Everything in the future. <laughs> yeah. Now, they have some tools, right? We see Moheim with her tarot deck. We see Moheim even just in general has kind of a sensitivity to the future. And of course, there are Mintats who can kind of calculate the future with some pretty good accuracy. But nothing quite beats straight up prescience. Right. So... The Kwisatz Haderach was a plan that they had where they said, you know what, I think if we breed and breed and breed, we can have someone who is 100% aware of what the future holds, can part that veil of time, and can, 
you know, obviously with us in charge, guide humanity to this kind of brighter, lovely tomorrow. But it does seem to me that they are acting on a number of hypotheses, right? I think about Moheim's head whipping around when Sightail mentions casually, oh yeah, we made a Kwisat Tatarak. She's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Right. <laughs> because, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Moheim is 100% a chicken in my imagination, by the way. <laughs> so they have an idea of what the Kwisat Tatarak will be like. And as Paul tells us at the end of Dune, I am the Kwisatz Haderach, but I'm not what the Bene Gesserit were expecting, right? Right. And uh, for now, that's where we're going to leave this because there is a lot more about the Bene Gesserit in future books, and we'll learn more about their kind of the ins and outs of their their scheming. But uh, for now, that's generally the sense of it. Right, right. So there's your answer, Sean. I hope that helps. And thanks again for writing in. Definitely. Now, the next email we get is from Lauren... Ocarino. That might be how you say your name. I'm sorry, Lauren, if that's not. <laughs> Lauren writes, I know this is a hot topic, but a few podcasts, media sources have criticized Dune as being a white savior story or misrepresenting stereotyping Middle Eastern culture. But I think the theme is meant to have us question all religions and the people that benefit from them. I don't feel like the story Frank is telling asks us to consider race and culture as being good or bad because the focus lies in how corrosive power is, whether Fremen, Harkonnen, Atreides, or Carino have power in that moment in time. What do you think? What are your thoughts on how Frank's message has or has not stood up to the test of time and culture? Wow. Great question, Lauren. Yeah. Thank you for writing to us, and thank you for sharing your own thoughts as well. Love when listeners do that, too. Totally. We have been asked this question a lot, and it's perhaps something that deserves a longer answer in some other episode where we dedicate more time and research to it. But I wanted to include it here because I think it's relevant to some of our discussions we're going to have today. Right. And because, again, we get this question a lot, and we can maybe try and briefly share our thoughts here and now. One caveat I do want to say, sort of going into this, is... We can really only share our views on this, right? We are just two guys with two views on the Dune universe, but there are millions, gazillions of fans of Dune with their own perspectives. So that's something to keep in mind. We have particular views and thoughts on this very hot, hot topic, right? and we are happy to share them. But of course, there are no right and wrong answers. Art is subjective and speaks to everyone in different ways and at varying degrees. So- here are our two cents, but that's all it is. Just our two cents. Right. Okay. With that caveat out of the way, let me jump into my thoughts. And Leo, I won't speak for you. Um, after I share my thoughts, I'd love to hear yours as well. And hopefully we can give Lauren somewhat of a complete answer that is cohesive and makes sense, which is exactly what we're known for here on Gamjabar. So first and foremost, I think Lauren's interpretation is spot on. I completely agree with what Lauren wrote in her email. Frank's story is a warning against charismatic leaders and authoritarian regimes and religion being used as a political tool. And in short, it's a warning against power, right? Those are all tools of power. Right, yeah. And to sort of address the white savior part of Lauren's question, that's why I don't think Dune is a white savior story at all. In fact, it's a warning against all kinds of saviors, white or otherwise, 
And we clearly, now that we're into Dune Messiah, we clearly see that message in the readings we've done so far. Just look at the havoc that Paul's rule has unleashed. Dune Messiah is clearly not Paul, the white savior, having won the day. It's quite the opposite. Especially starting the book with fucking Bronzo. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Our boy Bronzo. Bronzo's Uh, out here like, fuck Paul. (laughs) Right. Right. As for the second part of Lauren's question, these accusations against Frank for appropriating Arabic and Islamic culture, I can also understand how some people could take issue with it. And there are some genuine criticisms to be made. Yeah. And some criticisms, particularly with the film that I agree with, I hope we see more Muslim and Arabic actors in part two, because I don't think we got enough in part one. But personally, I don't see Frank's use of Islamic and Arabic culture and terminology as offensive or inappropriate. I think he treats the culture with respect. He's done his research and I think he molds it into his own vision of what that culture and religion could become 30,000 years into the future, which is when Dune takes place. Right. And I will say just sort of on a personal note to wrap up, as a young brown kid who grew up in a very white small town playing video games with all of my white friends like Call of Duty where I was just shooting a bunch of brown-faced terrorists, honestly, when I picked up Dune as a teenager... It was a breath of fresh air to see a book treat my culture and my religion, not as this vehicle for terrorism or fear, but as part of a cohesive culture and group that is frankly badass. Like the Fremen are these incredible people out in the desert. And to see the ways that Frank intertwined Islamic terminology and Arabic culture within Fremen culture was a treat for me as a teenager. These were words I recognized and they were being used in ways that were not, oh, look at that terrorist or, oh, look at the bad guy. And I appreciated that. Right, right. But those are my views. Um, Leo, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Lauren's question as well. Well, as a white man, here's my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I know, the the most underrepresented voice in all of podcasting. No, what I'll say is, is yeah, I agree with Lauren. Of course, I agree with you, Apu. Claims that Dune is a white savior story really are pretty shallow. Like if you're if you're reading Dune and that's what you're taking away from it, you're you're missing quite a bit of the book. But again, I, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you don't really need an explanation on that. Yeah. So I will say, kind of maybe shedding some compassion on that kind of knee jerk reaction is like. I look back on three decades of media consumption and we've all spent, I mean, especially here in the States, our whole lives being spoon fed white savior stories, basically. And as you pointed out, Abu, like so many examples of Arabic culture being basically this two dimensional monolith used as like the boogeyman in media for the last 20 years. So I cannot begrudge people who like read the synopsis of the book, or maybe they see part one. I can't really begrudge anybody going, you know what, this book written by a white dude in the 60s is not my cup of tea. Like, that's totally fair. I mean, Frank's story, taking a step back and talking about Frank for a second, 
His story is warning us about the corruptible people who are drawn to power. And at the end of the day, what he heralds is the value of change, the avoidance of stagnation, you know, challenging yourself, evolving. Even the most progressive people in the 1960s will be falling short today in some way, right? Like the conversation has changed inevitably. Yeah. Well, there you go, Lauren. Those are our thoughts. Thank you for the incredible question and the wonderful email to both Lauren and Sean today. As always, come to our podcast at gmail.com, folks. Yeah. All right. Let's get into today's reading. As always, we're going to start with a summary of today's chapters. Then we'll dive into our key takeaways. And finally, we'll wrap up with our spice morsels. Indeed. Let's get into it. So the first chapter today, chapter 12 begins with Paul, who awakens suddenly from an ominous vision. He is sweaty and not sleeping well are things we can kind of (laughs) gather about him. We learn in this chapter that he's had to like dramatically up his spice dosage in order to continue having kind of clear, prescient visions. The vision that has him so shaken is a vision of the moon falling from the sky and being destroyed with a great hissing and shaking ground which is never a good sign when the ground is hissing at you. That's not a, that's a rattlesnake. I mean, that's clearly rattlesnakes. Yeah, right. Run. Run. <laughs> Run. <laughs> Serpentine. No, shit. Snakes will get you. <laughs> anyway. Right. Don't run in a straight line because snakes go super fast straight. You got to zigzag. <laughs> Famously, snakes Famously. go very straight. Very. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Am I mixing up alligators? <laughs> <laughs> I... Love everything that just happened. Okay. (laughs) Nevertheless, the chapter is interesting because it's mostly him completely absorbed in this vision. And it's such a weird chapter, but it has so much almost poetic weight and there's a lot to talk about. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to, one of our takeaways is going to be this chapter, his vision, maybe some of the possible interpretations about it. So stay tuned for that. Don't stop listening to the episode right now. But he is joined partway through dramatically by hate. Hate is like, yo, what's up? And Paul's like, ah, <laughs> hello. <laughs> and his mood is made kind of worse, kind of weirder. Hate is not, doesn't have great bedside manner in this chapter. Yeah. Paul encourages hate to like play the Zinsuni and it doesn't help. Nevertheless, we do get one of my favorite retorts from Paul here. This quote honestly just jumped out at me and is probably among my top 20 favorite things in dune quote don't parade smoke blackened altars before me paul growled i've heard enough sad histories of gods and messiahs why should i need special powers to forecast ruins of my own like all those others the lowliest servant of my kitchens could do this end quote Uh, oh my god (laughs) Good. That is top 20 material right there. Don't parade smoke blackened altars before me. (laughs) So good. Hates like, yo, fucking fair, my guy. (laughs) All right. You're in that kind of mood, I see. Right. What a haiku that was. Anyway, (laughs) the chapter ends on Paul's bleak existential crisis. And buckle up. This takeaway is going to be a ride. All right. Chapter 13. This one's a doozy. So let's dive in. We join Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Moheim as she's being escorted to a meeting with the one and only Emperor Paul 
Wadib Atreides. And like many of us would in this situation, she is freaking out. She has spent the day using the Dune Tarot to try and figure out what it is Paul wants, to try and peer into the future, get a clearer picture of what is to come. She's trying to get an upper hand. She's about to go meet the most powerful being and emperor in the galaxy. As she's walking through this citadel, we are reminded of how just unimaginably huge it is. She is being taken down this labyrinth of corridors and side doors and rooms. And I almost get the sense that they're maybe walking her in circles for a bit to make sure that she doesn't map out the inside of the Citadel, being the reverend mother that she is. Right, right. Now, once she enters the even more expansive throne room itself and walks down what I imagine is this incredibly long and painful, like, red carpet all the way (laughs) up to the throne. Yeah. yeah. Paul receives her sitting at this throne cut from a single emerald. Again, showing just how lavish and powerful his rule is. The conversation is quite frank. Moheim is a little bit more direct than I personally would be with the most powerful being in the galaxy, but they both sort of cut to the core of it. And after this initial couple of jabs back and forth, Paul suggests that they just drop any posturing and talk about what they both need to talk about. Right. And so Moheim asks, what do you want, Paul? Why am I here? Right. And rather than answer, Paul then invites her to a private chamber behind the throne room. In the chamber, Paul also cuts to the chase and says, quote, I wish to bargain with you for the life of my beloved, end quote. Ugh. And Paul makes an offer. He will give the Bene Gesserit what they so desire, his seed, his genetic material, and he will allow them to use artificial insemination to do with that seed whatever they will, right? Continue their breeding program as they wish in exchange for protection for Chani, in exchange for Chani's life. The problem and the catch here and why this offer is honestly like really, really crafty on Paul's part right. is that the Benny Gesserit are very, very, very against artificial means right. of breeding. They're old school. And this is a view that has both been encouraged by the Bene Gesserit and as a result of the Butlerian Jihad. The universe is against this almost sinful act of artificial insemination. And it's really shocking that Paul would even suggest it. But before Moheim can respond in outrage, he cuts her off and claps back. Quote, We'll not discuss the things your sisterhood forbids. I will not listen to talk of sins, abominations, or the beliefs left over from past jihads. End quote. So good. He knows that she is not going to be hot on this idea, but she might just be desperate enough to keep his genes that maybe she'll go against this deeply held belief that the Bene Gesserit and the universe have against artificial breeding. Now, the other brilliant part of Paul's offer here is that this is also a strike against future contenders to the throne. Quote, the Reverend Mother understood now the subtle depths of Paul's offer. He would make the Bene Gesserit party to an act which would bring down popular wrath. 
were it ever discovered. They could not admit such paternity if the emperor denied it. This coin might save the Atreides genes for the sisterhood, but it would never buy a throne. End quote. Damn, yeah. Brilliant stuff. What an incredible chess move by Paul yeah. here. He's out here playing 5D chess against the Benny <laughs> Chesserit. He's working all his angles. And of course, you would hope he would be because he has seen this meeting and its many outcomes in his visions. Right, He's trying right. to work the angles into the most optimal vision that he can. So that's the offer that he presents to Moheim. He also drops a bombshell on everyone in the room and reveals that Chani is pregnant. Hey, Mazel tov. <laughs> Indeed. Congrats to Chani, sort of. We're going to learn a bit more about that in a second. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> in the next chapter, things are not so great. But Chani is finally pregnant because we know she changed her diet. She went all keto and Irulan's only carb-based poison, <laughs> contraceptive. <laughs> was no longer effective. So Chani has now become pregnant, and the thing that Moheim and Irulan worried about in that conversation from last episode has come to pass. Chani is about to give Paul an heir to the throne and introduce her wild strain, her wild genes, with that of the Kwisatz Haderach genes. Right. Moheim, at this moment, before she answers, decides to pull a classic who-wants-to-be-a-millionaire move and use one of her lifelines. <laughs> and so she uh, selects Ask a Mentat and turns yeah. to Hate and says, hey, is this a good deal? Act as a Mentat for me. Should I take this deal? And Hate's answer is iconically bullshit because he like doesn't <laughs> really give her a clear answer. No, not at all. And what a waste of a lifeline for, per for poor Moheim. You know, it's like, you, you call your mom on who wants to be a millionaire, and she's like, I don't know anything about comic books. Wrong person to call. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, Alia also hops in and says, quote, what else is hidden in this bargain? End quote. Right. And Moheim here, for the most part, has been avoiding Alia in this room because, of course, Alia is this pre-born abomination. Moheim is forced to recognize that while Alia might be this hateful thing, she is still a reverend mother and operates just like Moheim does. She has other memories. She has these other reverend mothers in her head. And it's the same question that Moheim and the reverend mothers in her head are also asking. What else is hidden in this bargain? So there's almost this moment of connection that Moheim and Alia have here as two reverend mothers who are analyzing this bargain from very similar angles. It's a moment where Moheim, for maybe the first time ever, sees a bit of herself in Alia. Right. Yeah. So she makes it clear. She's like, you know what? Listen, Paul, I need time to think. Can I call my uh, counsel on Wallach 9? Paul basically says, uh, you know, I'll allow it. And here, hate cuts in again, kind of unexpectedly, saying, will you bargain with the Benny Tleilax? And pretty much everyone in the room is like, what? Hate, why are you asking these questions when you are? And Paul is basically like, what? No, I'm not going to. No, stop it. Not interested. They're weird. They're weird and gross. <laughs> Alia asks Hate, follow-up question, if the Tleilaxu will bid favor with Paul. Paul realizes in that moment that Alia hasn't seen the like many, many outcomes of this meeting, but 
Anyway, Paul is like, his mind is wandering, starts quietly crying, which has just got to be so upsetting to see. <laughs> it's just right. Oof. Timothy Chalamet just looking around the room, just weeping silently. And uh. Ollie is like, what is happening? And we get two incredible quotes here. Quote, there are many degrees of sight and many degrees of blindness, Paul thought. And then after a bit, quote, from the Orange Catholic Bible, what senses do we lack that we cannot see another world all around us? End quote. Wow. Yeah, it's just a beautiful thought in general. Like, what senses do we lack? Is just such a question that you can't really answer, but is interesting. And then we get this quote, and this breaks my heart, but I think it's just so beautiful. Quote, Alia crossed to her brother, sensing his utter sadness. She touched a tear on his cheek with a Fremen gesture of awe, said, We must not grieve for those dear to us before their passing. Before their passing, Paul whispered. Tell me, little sister, what is before? End quote. Oh, my God. Which, like, God. I mean, this could have a few meanings, but for me, immediately, I'm thinking about that chapter in Dune when he's trying to determine when in time he is. Yeah. But in general, that he was losing himself in time so long ago. That's, you know, 14 years ago, you know, 12 years ago. The idea of, like, the deaths of the people in the room, that he's haunted with them, and that he's looking around thinking about these people and going, they're dead. I mean, you're mourning their deaths now because for him, everything is now. Ugh, that's so painful. It's brutal, but I think it really speaks to, you know, Paul and his, uh, the, the curse of prescience. Right, right. For us, the reader, Chani is here. And for Paul, Chani is both here and not here in infinite degrees. Right. It's all the same. The past, the present, the future starts to blend in a very confusing way. The curse of prescience indeed. All right. Chapter 14. Yes. We join a very groggy Edric. It's super (laughs) early in the morning. He hasn't had his spiced coffee yet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who is at this moment frustrated that Saitil has decided to come visit him and didn't bring him a mocha latte something something from Starbucks. (laughs) You know, he's pissed. He's like, I sent you my spice Starbucks coffee order via Distrans. Come on, bro. Did you even swipe my punch card? I'm so close to a free coffee. (laughs) Did you spit in the bat's mouth? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Now, as we all clearly know, lesson number one of Conspiracy School is don't openly hang out with your co-conspirators. And Edric is also pissed that Sidetail is just like openly here visiting him. Like, aren't we conspiring? What are you doing, my guy? (laughs) Sidetail, on the other hand, is very much not concerned. And it turns out that he has, for the past unknown amount of time, been regularly sort of changing up his appearance and walking around Arakeen in the palace, scoping things out, learning what he can about the city and Paul's rule. And uh, he's not concerned at all. He's like, it's fine. Nobody would recognize me. I've I've worn enough different faces. Right, right, right. And uh, I love that Frank's writing here gets a little bit sassy because Edric (laughs) at this moment thinks, quote, the chameleon thinks a change of shape will hide him from anything, Edric thought. With rare insight, end quote. <laughs> With rare insight. Oh, rare insight. 
Edric is about to get shit on in this chapter so much, and yeah, that is just true. the first of many slights against him. It's great. Now, Sightail is here with a very important message for Edric, and the gist is that he's impatient. The conspiracy is not moving fast enough, and hate the Gola that is at the core of their plot needs to move faster. He needs to hurry up and destroy Paul, as he was built for. Edric, on the other hand, is a bit more hesitant. He's like, didn't you guys create hate? The Gola, isn't he your creation? Why do I have to be the one to go push him to move faster and destroy Paul? Right, right, right. And it's at this moment that Sidetail starts to recognize how much Edric fears Alia and all of her unknown abilities. It's something that Edric is also thinking at this point. He's wondering how much his own pressing abilities can actually block hers. They know that it works against Paul, but Alia is still this wild card, this unknown. And Sadtail realizes that Edric maybe fears Alia more than Paul himself. He thus brings up this potential that Alia might wed and produce an offspring, which just unnerves poor Edric even more. <laughs> the dude is like stammering and crippling under his anxiety at this moment. Right. The conversation then gets a bit more philosophical. And Sidetail talks about how Arrakis is this planet that speaks to him, that speaks of creation. He goes on about this idea of tracks in the sand and how every night the wind blows and there's a fresh layer of sand for people to leave their mark on, to walk through and leave their tracks in. Right. Edric uh, continues to be very confused and anxious during all of this <laughs> and accuses Sidetail of talking too much like a Fremen. To which Saito responds, quote, this is a Fremen thought, and it's instructive. They speak of Muad'Dib's jihad as leaving tracks in the universe in the same way that a Fremen tracks new sand. They've marked out a trail in men's lives, end quote. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Yeah. And Edric is still very much not following Saito's philosophical train of thought here, and Saito then makes a really profound observation about Paul. It shows us how much Sidetail truly understands. This reconnaissance he's been doing these past few weeks is clearly paying off. He says that Paul didn't use the jihad, but that the jihad used him. And that, quote, I think he would have stopped it if he could, end quote. Ah, Sidetail. Sidetail. Killing it. My I guy. feel like he's read this book. Yeah. Right. He's out here really doing his homework. That, I think, is an observation that not everybody in the universe could make about Paul. Right. Now, Edric, our poor, poor boy Edric, is still so confused and doesn't <laughs> understand any of the points that Sightail is making. And it's clear to us, the reader, that Sightail is just leagues ahead of this dumb fish man. Sightail is just on another level of intelligence. And a frustrated Sightail then tries to just bring the conversation back to Alia and is much more blunt and less philosophical here. He paints a clearer picture for Edric. He says that Paul's religious government is more powerful and dangerous than any in history and that Alia is a dangerous variable in all of this and that she could, quote, shake the universe, much like this podcast. <laughs> so in short, again, circling back to his main point, Sightail says the conspiracy needs to accelerate its plans. We have to move faster, and Edric needs to push the Gola further. 
And that's where the chapter wraps up. Now, there could be a couple of different ways to read this chapter and interpret some of the philosophical musings and the back and forth that's happening here. My views on it are that Sidetail, through some of the things he's learned while he's out here changing faces and experiencing Arakeen and Paul's rule, has come to fear and respect the Fremen and Paul's empire much more than he did just a month or two ago, right? Much more than he did before arriving here himself. Right. And I get the sense that, just to sort of wrap up my thoughts on this chapter, I get the sense that both Edric and Sidetail are starting to realize here that perhaps the conspiracy has bitten off more than it can chew. Right. And maybe, just maybe, taking down the most powerful human being in history and his equally powerful sister yeah. is no easy task. Yeah. With that being said, let's wrap up the reading with chapter 15. This is our final chapter of this section. We've jumped forward a few weeks. Paul is sweaty. Love, love starting <laughs> these chapters with sweaty Paul all the time. He's on the training floor, though. The sweat is because he's been working out with hate. They're gym bros doing some knife fighting, some uh, sword fighting. Now, Chani is currently with the medics, and she comes into the room, and she's mad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the medics are like, oh, by the way, you have contraceptives in your system. She immediately is like, that fucking Irulan has been poisoning me. And the doctors told her, the medic, medics told her, listen, there's going to be problems with your per pregnancy because of it. Like there's going to be problems with the birth because of these contraceptives. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul kind of takes her into his arms, doesn't break the news yet that he's totally aware of all of this. Although he reacts in a way that <laughs> Maybe she's just used to this because he's the Kwisatz Haderach, but she's like, I've been poisoned. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and of course, my natural reaction would be like, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, right. what? 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 Did you know about this? <laughs> Instead, Chani's focused. She's like, I'm going to fucking murder Irulan. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Paul's like, no, nah, you're not. And Chani basically accepts this. Now, Paul internally thinks, quote, Irulan, prolonged your life, beloved. For you, the time of birth is the time of death, end quote. So Tani is angry, but she accepts his wishes, turns her attention to hate. She's like, yo, you're out here fighting fucking zombies. Uh, I don't trust him. He's too hot. He's like six, seven. And she's worried about Paul's safety. She's like, you shouldn't be knife fighting that fucking zombie. <laughs> you kidding me? Now, in the following conversation, Paul basically insists that hate is Duncan Idaho. Hate kind of just keeps saying philosophical things that confuse and anger Johnny. Paul seems used to it. He's like, yeah, that's kind of his thing. It's his whole bit. Um, but they together, the three of them, stumble into this conversation topic. Gola's being restored to their previous memories and selves. And hate is not unaffected by this. He is immediately very involved emotionally we learn that the tleilaks who have tried many many times to restore agola to their former identity fully but have always failed and this is something that hate wants desperately you know paul goes hey is that something you would want and hates like yes oh my god yes <laughs> dang i want that so much and although he is like i don't think it can be done 
And even hate at this point is like, maybe I'm not even Duncan Idaho. Like, that's a fear. Paul presses on and basically agitates him, kind of on purpose. And in that moment, Chani sees glimpses of the man Duncan Idaho, like not hate. She sees glimpses, shimmers, little sparkles of pre-death Duncan Idaho. We get this passage, quote, For a brief moment, the Gola had been an intense, vital human being. For that moment, he had been someone she did not fear. Indeed, someone she liked and admired. Now she understood Paul's purpose in this probing. He had wanted her to see the man in the Gola flesh, end quote. I love that passage so much. Chani, having resolved that, is like, okay, uh, let's go back for a second. Can I kill Irulan? <laughs> like, <laughs> may- maybe the answer's changed in the last couple of minutes. And Paul's like, no, no, you can't kill Irulan. It's fine. And he says, like, no, I'm angry. And Chani's like, you don't seem angry. You seem miserable. You seem so sad. And Paul's like, yeah, both. <laughs> both of those. And in the final moments in the chapter, there is some distance between Paul and Chani. But in these last moments of the, the reading in this, this whole section, Chani's like, well, I got to go eat because now I have to eat three to four times as much as I used to in order to be alive because my like life is burning away with this pregnancy. And uh, Paul's like, yeah, that's uh, I understand your fear. And it's just, even though they're only six weeks into this pregnancy, just everything is moving way, way, way too quickly. There's also this added subtext here to Paul saying things are going too quickly. Remember, time is meaningless to him. So the fact that he's feeling the pressure of time here, feeling like things are moving too quickly, hurtling forward into a future that he doesn't want, that's profound. And it's important to call that out, I think. Like there is that subtext that to the prophet to the messiah to the guy who doesn't know where and when he is most of the time because he's tripping through time right suddenly he feels like he's running out of it yeah and on that sour note (laughs) (laughs) that's the end of today's reading That, that really took a downhill at the end there emotionally but those are today's chapters a lot of heavy philosophical musings a lot of tense conversations between our characters And we're clearly starting to set the stage for the second half of this book, for sort of the climax and conclusions of all of these things that have been hinted at so far. Right. And with those out of the way, we're going to transition into our key takeaways after a brief break. So hang out. Once we're back, we're going to talk about moons and also visions. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back, folks. Let's dive into our key takeaways. So let's unpack this vision that Paul is having at the start of today's reading. This vision of a moon stretching and elongating and coming crashing down, the earth shaking, darkness engulfing him. There's a lot there. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of subtext. And we want to take a few minutes here to really dive deeply into these visions. Let's start off by quoting exactly what it is that Paul saw. <laughs> We're Quote. getting to that audiobook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're getting to that audiobook, folks. Uh-huh. Quote. Paul saw the moon become an elongated sphere. It rolled and twisted, hissing, the terrible hissing of a star being quenched in an infinite sea, down, 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 like a ball thrown by a child. It was gone. This moon had not set. Realization engulfed him. It was gone. No moon. The earth quaked like an animal shaking its skin. Terror swept over him. End quote. And this vision, I mean, the, the writing here is so beautiful, so poetic, and so terrifying. And it is terrifying enough to scare him awake, right? He's in this very heavy, spice induced trance. But this vision is the one that breaks that trance and sort of shocks him into consciousness. And as he tries to process this vision, it's described that he both looks outward over Arakine, over the city that sort of disgusts him. He looks out over it and is appalled by what he sees. This city shining brightly under the high noon sun of Arrakis. And he also looks inward at the exact opposite. Pitch black nothingness. No moon in the sky. This vision of a collapsing moon and then pure blackness that follows. Emptiness. Terrifying stuff. And the contrast there, I think, is important and intentional. Right. Arakeen City, brightly lit by the sun dis that disgusts him, and also the pitch black in his visions that terrifies him. Two opposites that are both connected to uh, bad feelings. <laughs> right. Hence his permanent depression. <laughs> it's just like, right. oh, look at these two <laughs> options. You like option A or B. They're both sad and awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Right. His first thought of this vision is basically that it's heralding, and this is a direct quote, monstrous loss of individual security. And I mean, this goes back all the way to him having a vision in that still tent with his mother going, they will call me Muad'Dib and seeing the shadow of the kangaroo mouse on the, you know, on the moon. He named himself after the little mouse that's on their moon, on one of the two moons of Arrakis. Yeah. Also, beginning of the chapter, or beginning of the book, recall Moheim, an archer shooting the moon from the sky. Is she the archer, or is she the moon? We are, we are getting that imagery again, and it's so poignant to have it brought up in both situations. Moheim's better than she thinks in some, in some ways. <laughs> Yeah, that was her version of a prescient vision, seeing something very similar to what Paul sees here. Yeah. Man, Love Island UK loves its moons, and so does Frank Herbert. 
Uh, That's a very deep cut to like an inside <laughs> Love Island joke about moons. All I know is Liam and Melly. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I just angered from, a bunch from of season seven. Yeah. yeah, I'm a huge Love Island fan. Send me your memes, folks. <laughs> yeah, I love this moon imagery because it's so personal to Paul. He has taken on the name of a moon. The second moon in the sky is called Muad'Dib. It's also a reference to the desert mouse. So seeing it come crashing to the ground, that's not going to make you feel good. That's going to feel hella personal right. when a vision shows you that. And the moon symbol is also something that his religion, as it has sweeped across the galaxy, has adopted. Later in the chapter, as Paul is looking out over Arakeen, he muses to himself that the Fremen have started calling themselves the children of the moon. And he also looks out over Alia's temple and he sees the green and black moon symbol hanging over her temple. So this moon imagery is very personal to Paul, to his empire, to his rule, to the Fremen. And to see this vision of it come crashing down, followed by oblivion, followed by nothing, darkness, that is what haunts Paul in this moment. And that is not a good omen. <laughs> I'm no expert on omens, but <laughs> doesn't seem good. Yeah, it's like a two out of 10 omen. That is a bad <laughs> omen. You know, as he's thinking about kind of Alia's report, about the kind of the, Fremen's, the Fremen woman's body found in the desert, Paul thinks to himself, quote, you do not take from this universe. It grants what it will, end quote. And later on, Sightail echoes basically the same thing telling Edric, you know, Paul Paul did not choose this. The jihad used Paul. Yeah. Quote, you can't stop a mental epidemic. It leaps from person to person across parsecs. It's overwhelmingly contagious. It strikes at the unprotected side, in the place where we lodge the fragments of other such plagues. Who can stop such a thing? Wadib hasn't the antidote. The thing has roots in chaos. Can orders reach there? End quote. Oh, I love that so much. It's so the thing good. Has roots in chaos. This is a contagious mental epidemic that attacks a very unprotected part of the human mind and the mind that is susceptible to this sort of reasoning and this sort of thought. And no individual, although an individual can start this, Certainly, especially because the fucking Benny Gesserit <laughs> set the stage. A, an individual can light that spark. No individual can undo it. Right, right. I love this idea. Yeah. This, this idea of, the, of some chaotic power that is beyond the individual, like you're saying, Leo. It's beyond the human grasp. Right. This idea we're going to revisit time and time again, and it will continue to come up. It shows us that there are limitations to Paul's power. And this is where some of Frank's political musings start to creep into the book. As Paul looks out over Arakeen, quote, once long ago, he'd thought of himself as an inventor of government, but the invention had fallen into old patterns. It was like some hideous contrivance with plastic memory. Shape it any way you wanted, but relax for a moment and it snapped into the ancient forms. Forces at work beyond his reach in human breasts eluded and defied him. End quote. 
Uh. Again, chaotic powers beyond his reach. Yeah. Powers eluding him and defying him. He is not all powerful. Oh, it's so good. It's a it's a thought that gives you pause and speaks again to this idea that there are powers beyond even Paul's amazing, amazing abilities. There are old patterns in human forces that will always be beyond his grasp. And what I also love is this then leads into a second idea that Paul's empire and his jihad and everything he's created and built, this religion, in the larger context of all of time and space, again, a thing that Paul can tap into, is kind of meaningless. There's this really depressing thought that Paul has here. Quote, Wadib's jihad was less than an eye blink in this larger movement. The Bene Gesserit swimming in this tide, that corporate entity trading in genes, was trapped in the torrent as he was. Visions of a falling moon must be measured against other legends, other visions in a universe where even the seemingly eternal stars waned, flickered, died. What mattered a single moon in such a universe? End quote. And again, the moon sort of representing Paul and his empire here. What does it matter in an infinite universe, his rise and fall? But still engaging with the timeline that's relevant for celestial bodies. Because, yeah, fucking stars. Billions of years. <laughs> we are talking a distant future, and it's only 30,000 years from now. Paul is seeing the future. Who knows how much of it? And so to say... On a scale, a time scale where celestial bodies that have existed for as long as humanity has walked upright will flicker and die. And in that time scale, what is, you know, Muad'Dib's jihad? Like, what is that on that scale? It's nothing. And what then purpose is there, right? It's, it's almost nihilism because he sees how insignificant everything is in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Uh, powerful stuff, depressing stuff, and I love this. I love when Frank gets deep and philosophical and political, and we get into like the very nature of humanity and the cyclical patterns that we're all so tied to. I love meanwhile, it. Ugh. Meanwhile, hate walks into the room, and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically just slapping Paul with some like. It's just so good. Here's here's the quote, and I I just love this so much. I love Hate's voice in this yeah. book. is so good. Quote, You are drunk on too much time. You run from death. You strain at the next instant, refuse to live here and now. Augury, what a crutch for an emperor. End quote. What a crutch indeed. You're drunk on too much time. <laughs> it's like my god paul's like hey make me feel better and hates like you drunk oracle <laughs> bastard <laughs> paul's like hey that's not nice <laughs> right hate is out here just constantly saying it like it is or dropping like dope philosophical beats it, those are alia. like his two moods <laughs> kissing alia maybe a third mood sorry yeah. the kiss she wanted yeah sorry right <laughs> I agree with you 100% that I love Hate's voice. It almost cuts through the noise, right? Hate is yeah. a character in this book that is here to cut through the bullshit. We talked about how he calls Alia out on her bullshit in that Ornithopter ride last episode. Here, once again, Paul is in his head. He's 
anxious about this vision. He's thought, talking about how meaningless everything is and how human humanity is stuck in these cycles, blah, blah, blah. And then hate walks in and he's like, dude, you're not living in the here and now. You're letting yourself wallow in misery and wallow in these visions. That's not good. You're a mopey you fucking a character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're the main right. character of this book. This book is sad as fuck, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's powerful stuff. I, lo I love hate. You're totally spot on. I love hate's voice in this book. And in just one short quote here, he has laid out the tragedy of Paul Atreides, right? He has laid out the tragedy of being the legendary Kwisatz Haderach. Paul has mastery over time, and it's his ultimate weapon, but it's also his curse. It's this spider web that he has to try and understand and untangle on his own. Remember, he is the first of his kind to ever do this. There is no training manual for how to deal with prescient powers. And I, I think it's important to remember that through all of this, we, we rag on Paul for being depressed and for being mopey, but through all of this, it is painful to watch him try and wrestle with his powers and everything that entails. The thing that really hit me in these readings, and to wrap up this first takeaway, really, the quote that just kind of was a gut punch for me was the teary-eyed response to his sister. Quote, tell me, little sister, what is before? Uh, End yeah. quote. That's his everyday reality. Ugh. There's, so there's that, and there's also thinking about, you're right, that he's the first of his kind. Even Alia, who everyone lumps in with him, we see in these chapters he doesn't know what Alia is capable of. He doesn't know yeah. what she can see. He's not sure the extent of her powers. And multiple times, she retreats within herself to confer with other voices, to be a reverend mother and to be a member of the Bene Gesserit in a, in a, in a way. And in those moments, there's a point where Paul says he feels like he was cast away from her that he's utterly alone, that she had left him. And that idea, of course he has Chani, but Chani is sometimes a believer as much as she's his partner and other half. Alia is like his teammate. You know, he, he, she's the only one he has camaraderie with as a prescient being. And that she sometimes leaves him is just heightens that sense of, he knows she's on his team, but how much? How much does she understand firsthand? And then also she will sometimes leave him, and that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Ugh. What is before? Oh, God, it kills me. Kills me. Anyway, speaking of Chani, let's go to our second takeaway. Yes. Chani. <laughs> Basically, Chani. <laughs> Specifically, Chani as the unchanged friend. Like, she, to be clear... She gets such a good moment in this reading. It's just that she like kicks down the door or kicks apart the bead curtains or whatever and is like, I'm a fucking killer. Like it's, <laughs> it's so good because it's what a lot of us are already feeling about Irulan. And it, it's it, it felt for me very um, cathartic to see yeah. Chani's rage on page. You know, it's just it's such a good moment. And it's also a great opportunity to talk about Chani because we haven't really had a chance to talk about her at length. And she's such a vital character in these in these scenes. Right, right. So for this takeaway, we wanted to sort of step into her shoes and look at the story from her perspective, because the reality is that Chani is really central to 
a lot of this book. Right. She she is the one that will give Paul an heir to the throne. She is the one that Paul is afraid to lose and thus is acting in the way he is, right? He's out here trying to cut deals. And her genes are this wild strain that will bring the Benny Gesserit's breeding program to a screeching halt. Yeah. She is so central to so many of the characters in this book. And so it's important to to recognize what, what an important role she plays in this story. So that's what we wanted to do with this takeaway. And I wanted to start, actually, Leo, with this incredible observation that Paul makes in that chapter where she comes in raging about Irulan. Right, right. Quote, he realized then that life in the royal keep had left Chani unchanged. She'd merely stopped here for a time, inhabited a way station on a journey with her man. Nothing of the desert had been taken from her. End quote. Mm. Ah, I love so good. that. Also, the implication that this is remarkable, right? Yeah. The implication that this is an example is not the standard. Most people in the royal keep are changed. Again, everything and everyone around Paul has changed. Yeah, it, it is incredible. If you think of Paul and his rule and his influence as this current, Chani is this rock who has maintained her shape despite this current washing over her. Right. While other characters have entirely changed. You brought up Stilgar, I mean, a once great Nabe who is now effectively Paul's secretary and is easily influenced by any semi-mystical voodoo bullshit that Paul and Alia spout. <laughs> right. Not what you'd expect from Stilgar. And then there's Korba, who was once a deadly death commando in Paul's Fidekin. He was a warrior. He was out here spilling Harkonnen blood left and right. And now he is this groveling, scheming priest who is stuck within this religious structure that Paul and his godhead has created. Right. So many of these people have changed or have come into lives that are drastically different than the ones they had before because of Paul. And when you look at Chani, that's maybe not the case, right? Like in the sense that she is still the same person that she was when Paul first met her. She is still the same Fremen of the desert that she was when they first met all that time ago in that initial confrontation. Even if the actual events of her life have gone down a drastically different path than they would have if she hadn't met Paul and fallen in love with him, who she is is still the same. And I think that is profound and worth calling out. She has not changed herself to fit into the mold of Paul's new universe like all these other characters have. She is still the same Chani we met all the way back in the first book. Right. Yeah. Of course, all of this together makes this whole chapter just that much more tragic and, and just sad and frustrating and and. That's fine. I mean, that's part of the Messiah, the Messiah experience. <laughs> but, you know, we like to be clear, we are like we're on her side. The idea of like secretly poisoning someone to keep them barren so that you can have a child with their lover. It's like, no, get the fuck out of here, Irulan. You're terrible. Well, when you put it that way, Leo. <laughs> OK, yeah, it does seem bad. Said, Yeah, but if you said it differently, it would seem totally cool. Um it's what all the cool kids are doing. <laughs> but obviously, Chani hasn't seen 
what Paula's seen. And again, the way I said it just now really sucks, but Paul is seeing the other side of it, right? Irulan prolonged your life. For you, the time of birth is the time of death. Yeah. And they have a conversation that you kind of joked about this earlier. Have you seen it? Have you seen, seen it? But you can imagine that <laughs> right. this is something that comes up quite often when you are in love with a Kwisatz Haderach. That's a thing that you ask a lot. And Chani does. She asks Paul what he has seen in his visions. And uh, what is so frustrating is that he doesn't tell her. And I almost got the sense here that this is a point of tension in their relationship. I don't see how it could not be when you know your partner is seemingly this all-seeing messiah and he won't tell you? Why not? Like, what is he hiding? Yeah. I almost expected at some point her to say, hey, did you not, did you see this? That I had contraceptives in my system and did you not fucking think to tell me? (laughs) Uh, uh, Of course, again, she, we have to remember that she loves Paul and trusts him. Right. And ultimately understands that sometimes he has to explain his actions in a way that doesn't, isn't satisfying, you know? Yeah. Why did you do it that way? Well, because I don't know. It's a napkin in the breeze. There's a mountains in the, I don't know. Just choose a metaphor. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's complicated. And so I think she's probably used to that to some degree, but it's still so frustrating to not have that conversation happen. Right. But I think for Chani, it speaks to her love for Paul, right? The fact that she wouldn't question him when he doesn't tell her. Right. This is a man she has spent her life with that she deeply loves. And if he says this is the right path, she will accept his judgment and not question it. And of course, the powers play a role into it. Like you, you have to imagine that Chani is also justifying in the back of her head that maybe he has seen something. Right. And maybe this is the best path. And instead of questioning him or pushing back on it, I will simply accept it. Not because I am some sort of worshiper, but because I love him so much. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. So, I mean, all of this combined, and I, I have some thoughts on this, but I, I kind of want to hear what you have to say, Abu. Sure. Yeah. Um, given everything we know about Paul's prescience, about some of the things that he knows that he hasn't told Chani, and given what Chani knows, do you think Paul should tell her what he's seen? Uh, that's that's a great question. And I think this scene, this chapter in particular, intentionally leaves you with this question. Right. Right. Why is he hiding it at this point? She's already pregnant. Things are already happening. Why hide it? And I think if this was a normal relationship between two normal people, <laughs> I think the answer is obvious. It'd be like, yo, relationships are built on honest and open communication. What the fuck are you hiding, Paul? Tell her what you see. Right. God, I don't know. Like, part of me suspects that Paul has already seen what that would do, right? He has seen infinite visions. So there's no way he hasn't looked into visions where he reveals to Chani the truth, that he knows that some horrible fate will befall her and that she will lose her life in some way. Or in infinite ways, right? Like he could start listing off the many ways he sees her lose her life. And my assumption here is that Paul has perhaps already looked down many paths where he tells her the truth. 
and has seen results that are even worse and has realized that if he tells her, things might go even worse or if he tells her, the future might be locked in and he's trying desperately to keep his options open. Maybe he can cut a deal with the Bene Gesserit. Maybe he can change or massage the path of the future in a different way. So he's maybe perhaps afraid of locking the future in too tightly by revealing something to Chani. Right. Yeah. That's perhaps one interpretation of that. I think the other more personal interpretation I have of this, of why he would hide the truth of what he sees from Chani, is because of, again, his love for her. I think he's desperately trying to prolong the quote unquote happy time that he has with her, this time without this looming threat. And he's perhaps trying to protect her from the burden that he carries, this burden of peering into the future and knowing what is to come. What do you think? Should he just tell her outright? Are his reasons justified? What do you think's going on here? What's your read? I mean, I, I really agree. Of the, of the two points you made, the, the first one rings truest for me, that it's not as simple as it seems. You know, it's not a conference. It's not, these are not two normal people in two normal circumstances. This is someone who can see what happens if I tell her. And this is someone who in the past has dealt with, do I stay a part of the jihad or do I abandon it or do I die or do I, you know, and what he found was being a part of the jihad was one way of damage control, right? Like being there was better than the alternative of him not being there because then you just have Korba. (laughs) (laughs) God help us. You might survive. Fuck, you know, Corba, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So I think if telling her drove her away from him, now he doesn't, he's not there with her. He can't protect her the way maybe he is by keeping her informed about things that she deserves to be told, but not everything. Because if he told her everything, yeah, maybe that leads to some darker, more awful path. Yeah, it's wild. Just trying to untangle all of this. And this is Paul's everyday existence, every minute of every day. He's asking himself these questions. Right. All right. So those are our two takeaways there. These visions, the moon imagery, Paul untangling this web of prescience, and then Chani, a central character in this story who is handling all of this with her iconic grace. Right. Now, next, we're going to jump into our spice morsels and wrap up today's episode. But first, we're going to take one more short break. So stick around. We'll be right back with the spice morsels. Welcome back. Now that we're done with our takeaways, let's get into these spice morsels. So our first spice morsel is Arakeen Palace. Ooh, that's one giant morsel. It's it's a you could fit a whole city in this morsel. You could fit city. It's the biggest morsel in the history of all of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is our King Palace has been around for a bit, although it has changed dramatically in the last 12 years. And we see during Moheim's march through the palace, we get a sense of maybe how much it's changed and its current state. And it's worth talking about for a minute. So let's go. Let's talk about it. From the reading, quote, No planet, no civilization in all human history 
had ever before seen such man-made immensity. A dozen ancient cities could be hidden in its walls. End quote. Wow. It's big. It's a big, big place. It's like Ikea or a, what is it? Costco. It's like a Costco warehouse. You're like, yeah. entire townships could be inside this room. Right. Is that an Arakeen palace in your pants or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> no planet civilization in all human history has ever seen a something in your pants that big. No, it doesn't really work. <laughs> but, you know, listen, an effort was made. From the Dune Encyclopedia, we actually get some additional fun details. The palace was constructed during Paul's 12-year reign. So it kind of built up during that time and is, quote, the single most colossal structure known in all of human history, end quote. Now, Paul paid for it. Big, big structure, big price tag. Paul paid for it through basically taking control of all of Arrakis. The price of spice massively inflated, which very quickly made Arrakis the most, like, the wealthiest planet in the universe. And turns out when you conquer you know, whatever, 400 planets, you know, you, you wipe out a 61 billion people. There are suddenly a lot of people without jobs. He just hired labor from planets he'd conquered <laughs> and paid for it with his like, you know, profits from inflating spice value. And the final kind of detail in all of this that the Dune Encyclopedia provides us is honestly baffling, uh, but kind of incredible too. Apparently, you know, the jihad's raging across the universe. They're conquering civilizations. They're overturning false gods and idols. Apparently, they also went through the process of extracting whole buildings. Insane. From those planets. And we're like, you know what? That's a nice Eiffel Tower. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll be uh, adding that to my garden. And right. uh, I like that Eiffel Tower. It'll be a good centerpiece in my foyer. <laughs> it would be a shame if someone were to take it from you <laughs> it's like okay all right you get to take it here's our eiffel tower it's great enjoy it right right insane flex destroy that leaning tower though my ocd doesn't like it uh, it's so crooked fix it <laughs> Come on. benny Gesserit measuring skills i can tell it's not right like, yeah, we can too paul all right morsel number two it is a bit more of a, a general morsel i'm going to dig deeper into the morsels a bit here in a second, but generally speaking, the materials of Dune. Right, right. Throughout the first book and now Messiah, there are these references to various materials in the Dune universe. Words like metaglass, plasteel, plasmeld, etc., etc. And we wanted to just take a minute here to share what we could find about these materials. I think the sort of gist TLDR here is that these are just words, made up sci-fi words for future materials, but it is fun to dig a little deeper and see if there's more lore behind them. Right. So let's start with plasteel. Plasteel, from the terminology of Dune, is defined as, quote, steel which has been stabilized with stravidium fibers grown into its crystal structure, end quote. And the follow-up question listeners might have here yeah. is, what is stravidium? What the hell is and stravidium? It's, a, yeah. it's at that point <laughs> that I would smile and nod and immediately move on. Metaglass, <laughs> then, is defined. Except, hey, except uh -huh. stravidium is used in making balisette strings. That's cool. Fair. 
Fair. That is one thing we know about Stravidium. It is also the only other instance of the word Stravidium that I could find in Dune. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's used for ballast strings, and also the fibers are used to make plasteel strong. Cool. There you go. Cool. (laughs) Next up, we have metaglass. Again, from the terminology of the Imperium, metaglass is defined as, quote, glass grown as a high-temperature gas infusion in sheets of jasmium quartz. Noted for extreme tensile strength, about 450,000 kilos per square centimeter at two centimeters thickness, and capacity as a selective radiation filter. End quote. I'm going to be honest with you. No idea what that meant. (laughs) Me neither. So I spent like half an hour trying to figure out how to measure tensile strength, like Uh literally looking up definitions of like, okay, are we talking atmospheric pressure? No, it's like weight, but no, no. Then it's like if it breaks under pressure, but then I totally give up. I tapped out 450,000 kilograms per square centimeter. What does that mean? Send us an email, explain it. If you know out there in listener land, uh, how to like explain that in like understandable colloquial terms. I would love to hear from you. Yeah, podcast at gmail.com for all of you materials scientists out there. Please help us define metaglass better. Yeah. Finally, let's take a look at plasmeld. This is short. We just have a definition. Quote, a material similar to molten rock made from a heat-formed substance used for building. End quote. And again, not much more context beyond that. And going back to my original point, these are just uh, fun sci-fi words from the 80s meant <laughs> to uh, make it all seem very futuristic. Pew pew lasers. <laughs> the final morsel for today is Rihani decipherment, which is actually borrowed from a, a kind of previous reading that we had to, there was a previous episode that it was just running too long. And it was interesting to talk about, but I think especially as Sightail is sort of prodding Edric, like, we got to get fucking going, my guy, walking around with a hundred different disguises. I think it is worth talking about because it's really, it's quite interesting. Yeah. When Alia was first looking down on the Gola hate, we get this potentially confusing sentence, quote, captive memories absorbed in the womb during the moments of her mother's spice change identified this man for Alia, by a Rihani decipherment, which cut through all camouflage, end quote. And when I read that, it was that time again when reading Dune, I pause and I, I go, what fucking what? <laughs> like, what does that mean? <laughs> what are those words? Yeah. Well, to explain, Rihani decipherment is a Bene Gesserit ability used to recognize a registered individual no matter what overt change in behavior or appearance he or she assumes. So mm-hmm. to be clear, Benny Gesserits, we often see like Jessica registering someone through just observing their minutia, observing their behaviors, observing how they compose themselves and how they make decisions. Once they have registered an individual, no matter what Groucho Marx costume they put on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They are able to dis- like dis- identify someone that they've registered. Now, it's said that Rihani decipherment 
also allowed Bene Gesserit sisters to unerringly identify face dancers and golas. Hello. Which is nuts. Like, we talked about briefly face dancers being able to trick, you know, loved ones, lovers, into thinking that it is the same person. The fact that a, a, a sister could do that is insane and is actually probably unknown to Sightail because we haven't heard any sense of him thinking about this. This isn't something we've seen. So, again, just wanted to point that out. Brihani decipherment, super cool. Love that super sort cool. of like, yeah, extension of known Benny Gesserit abilities. Right. Another tool in their toolkit. Yeah. Seems very useful in identifying Clark Kent as Superman. <laughs> I see right through your glasses, bud. It's impossible to identify. The hair is different. <laughs> what are you talking about? Their hair is complete. And hey, listen, Clark, classically in suits. Superman's never wearing a suit. You're crazy. Right. You're crazy, right. Avu. Right. I'm the crazy one. I'm the crazy one. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I was playing a character just then that didn't have Rihani's decipherment. See how good right. it is? See, See? how powerful? <laughs> Wonderful. All right, folks. That wraps up yet again another book club episode. We are Indeed. halfway through Dune Messiah. It has been a journey. Indeed. And I can't wait to continue. So for next episode's reading, make sure you've read to page 248 in the mass paperback edition, which ends, if you're not, on the sentence, quote, and he noted how strong was the smell of fear and the perspiration all around, end quote. Man, wow. that sentence did not go where I expected it to go. Hey, yeah. Is yeah. that a tagline for the next Fast and Furious installment? <laughs> <laughs> Fast and Furious 12. And he noted how strong was the smell of fear and the perspiration all around. It's about family. It's about family. <laughs> oh, God. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. We hope this podcast does shake your universe, dear listener. Oh. We're going to shake your universe so fucking hard. Shake your old bones, you dirty, dirty <laughs> listener. <laughs> you dirty dog. <laughs> <laughs> you dirty Harkonnens. <laughs> that fucking got me so good. Worm food. For the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay.